Welcome to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Matthew. Fine, thanks. And you? I'm doing well. Just came off of a, a day of work, so that's Time always to relax fun. now, eh? <laughs> Yeah. The first question, and I, and I told you about this, how do you pronounce your last name? Because in English, the English pronunciation is Cruz, right? Uh, yeah, that will be Cruz. It will be the closest. It's Krause. 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 It's okay. something to do with cross, but I think Cruz will be the closest in English. But for, it's we'll, most we'll leave it for Cruz for now because <laughs> okay. I, I'm having difficulty with, with yeah, the accents there. Yeah, sure. Well, could you kind of give us an introduction of who you are? Just for the for the people who who don't know you, who aren't familiar with your work, I started working as a jeans maker about six years ago, and I've been going a long way. Starting with um, making clothes, then drifting off the path, and came back in two thousand fourteen and started my own brand, or not a brand, as a maker. And since I've been making jeans, shirts, uh, worker jackets, so now I'm more heading towards being uh, some kind of tailor. I work alone in a home studio. Very small, very practical, and uh, basically I'm just minding my own business and doing what I think <laughs> I like to do. Just tinkering around and figuring uh, out how yeah, to go. Yeah. I think it's probably more than just tinkering around because I've seen the jeans that you do and, and all the work that you do, and, it, and it, it's it's of some very high quality, at least from my, from my point of view. Uh, I do my best. I do my best. I like to be good at things I do, so I like to limit myself and go in depth instead of broadening myself so uh... well i think that's a good take on things and that kind of brings us to one something that i wanted to talk about which was self-learning there is a mindset of production and then there also is a mindset of quality and producing quality things and that also ties into learning and how you learn because if you learn in a way that is to produce maybe what you produce won't be the best and vice versa what do you think about that I think it depends on what you're aiming for. I mean, you can just set up a brand and you need to produce a certain amount of garments. And I think you can choose to make a certain um, level of quality. I try to be good at what I do. I'm mostly self-taught. That's a limitation in a way. I didn't study at Taylor's. I didn't do any apprenticeships. I just started out at a certain point and, and learned from there. And my only aim was to... Um, I think to follow my own goals and to try to get better at those things. For instance, when I was a bit around your age, I uh, did some courses in pattern making and I had a Around 20 at, years old. Yeah, around 20 years old indeed. So I'm right about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I just uh, had a machine and just was sewing all kinds of clothes. You know, I was self-taught at a machine and I made trousers, uh, shirts, coats, jackets, everything. I deconstructed a 501 just to see how the specific 501 shape was made. And uh, so I was just trying out all kinds of things. And the pattern making course was to help me go back to the roots of what I was doing. So was the pattern making course, you took the pattern making course, correct? I took a course to begin with and it was a bit too professional for me. I was just new at this stuff, so it was a bit, it went too fast for me. So I, I gave that up and I found someone to give me private lessons. The city I was from uh, used to be quite known for its garment industry until the 60s. In the 60s, it all went down because of everything going to uh, Asia. But there were still some people around and I found someone who had been working in industry and he taught me some things about the Runschau system. So I had some private tutoring, which was very nice. So I could just try to learn what I wanted to learn. So I, I just learned about drawing pants, you know, the classic trousers, uh, suit jackets, coats. Now from that, I just went on to making all those garments, trying out, not, not tutorial way, not with canvassing, but in a sense, you know, try how does a pattern work? How can I make it to, uh, to, be, to be a garment? So, so yeah, once upon a time, though, by where you are or where you were located in the Netherlands, there were tailors. I'm not sure about tailors. It's more about you know, it was more industry, I think. Uh, maybe one or two tailors. I wasn't quite aware of that at the time. Most of the industry was gone by then. I do remember one small atelier being there making coats, and I knew those people 
my grandfather was owner of a factory until the 60s. So there were a few connections. Then at a specific atelier making coats, I just could go and just get some nice cloth for to making coats, you know. So and uh, when I'd finished a coat or a jacket, I could go there to have it pressed in a decent way. So it was very nice. And but I think That's those really were, nice. Yeah, it was really nice. It, it really, I wish I had that service. I think just working at home with a regular iron gets you only so far. And going to a really professional presser, it's... Well, it really gave a good finishing. But I think those were about the last remains of, of the industry then. And so that you said, though, was kind of like an industrial industry. Like I remember we had spoken and you talked about other jeans makers and how they have sort of an, an industrial way of making jeans, which is historically correct. It's how the jeans used to be made. Is that kind of what the industry was like in, in the Netherlands at that time? Specifically in Groningen, the place I grew up, they adjusted factories, you know, making, making. I think it mainly suits and, and coats. That was mostly what was done there. I think in, in the 1960s, everything went down, you know. The place where I live now, Enschede, was known for uh, not as much the garment industry, but for the textile industry. At a point in time, I think about more than a century ago, it was, I think, the second largest in the world next to Manchester. So again, I'm in a place with a connection to what I'm doing now, which is, I think it's very nice. And there are a few cities in, in the Netherlands that were known for its industry. But that's all gone now, you know. It's uh, just a few women. Well, except for you. There's you. Yeah, okay, but that's all new school, you know. That's all new. There's a, there's a new the, guy on the, the block. The industry as such, you know, I think uh, back in the days it was just industry, as horrible as you would now say Bangladesh is. I think it's comparable. It was large, cheap labor, filthy. Difficult so was, working conditions. Yeah, I'm sure. I think it's about the same of comparable to what we are commenting about in, in the Far East now. It's interesting how much you're kind of self-taught, but then also you're at a, a point where you're so proficient so how did you go from, we can say maybe an apprentice, from being an apprentice, being a learner, to gaining the confidence to be able to sell your own work? I just know for me personally, it's kind of this thing where you're, at least in the relationship that, I, that I'm in, where I am an apprentice and there is a master tailor. Mm -hmm. So this, this kind of approval almost that I need with some of the things that I make from that person. Yeah, sure. So it's almost like you're kind of trying to seek the approval. But in your case, since you were more or less alone, you know, the entire journey, you're taking apart jeans, you're taking apart garments, figuring out how they were constructed. How did you go from not having that confidence to having that confidence to say, this is a great pair of jeans and yeah. I know you're going to like it? It took, it took a while. I mean, we're just talking about a few years later now. What I was talking about just now was about in the early 80s. So we're just skipping about 30, 35 years. In between, I've done some other things, and I think when you grow a bit older, you know, things are different. At the point in time in the 80s, I was just trying to make things, and when you're young, you have some cockiness, and you just do what you, what you do, and you think you're great. There comes a time when you know you're still not great, and you have to practice more, but in the years in between, I just drifted from a path and came back, like I said before, uh, a few years back deciding I want to go back to making clothes again. All those years in between build up to this, this I think. So it, I'm back to, where, back to where I started. So um, maybe it was also a bit of age, like, uh, like how you're age. saying. Yeah, absolutely, with, absolutely. In the 20s, you're kind of a bit cocky, but yeah. then since you had some experience in your 20s, then you kind of grew up, got married, you had children, and you probably gained a bit more wisdom and, and awareness. It's, it's, it's experience in general, to... I think. Yeah. yeah. And it's also yeah. Uh, the things I did in between. Um, everything helps making decisions in, uh, at a certain point. And when you at a certain point make a big decision of changing what you do, taking a different path, things come together, I think. And for me, it was consciously saying, I don't want to be employed anymore. I don't want to work for a boss. I want to do it my own way. And by limiting myself to at first, at first making jeans, I could just focus on that and go in depth. The only way to do something, to start something, I think, is to be, or at least try to be very good at what you do. There's no point in starting something and just winning it, you know? You have to be yeah. thorough in what you do. Well, and so you said you didn't want to have a boss. And I'm, I'm similar to that as well. I'm not a huge fan of having bosses. What, why is it that you don't like having a boss? I've been working all these years self-employed as a designer, but still because it was hard to, to make a good living as being uh, self-employed, I always had a job on the side. And it, it, it has always been a struggle, you know, combining the two and also working for someone telling you what to do in a way that you don't think it should be done. 
the thing was I like to I like to make up my own mind and, and do the things the way I want to do it. You know, I'm a bit a bit of a loner and I like to go my own way and I don't want to. Well, I just I start in the morning, make my own plans and finish them. You know, there's no one to to uh, how do you say that to control you or to yeah, to, to set your own life. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's I think the best way also to go to a certain point. Make your own path, and and I did have some people helping me out. You know, at first when I came back to deciding I want to make jeans, I always been a jeans lover. So why not make jeans? And the thing was for me with my experience in, in tailoring years before making clothes, I only knew how to do draw a pattern for measurements, no standard sizing, only as you would say bespoke. So. The thing lacking in, in, in what I knew about jeans, for instance, was everybody has a favorite pair of jeans. Most people have a favorite pair of garment. It's a pair of jeans. Everybody has is always in search of a better pair, you know, and nobody finds the perfect pair. So especially if you're connected to tailoring, why should you have everything tailored unless you pair of jeans? So there's an immense uh, amount of different brands available in jeans and models, and hardly any will make you something to your measurements. So I think that seemed to me the perfect combination, having something not classic, not, not, not tutorial, but something casual, you know, something that everybody likes, and still make it to a person's measurements. You you described yourself so good by saying kind of being an, an individualist or you don't like to have a boss over you. You kind of do your own thing. And I, I don't know if you would call yourself a tailor. I think you said you're a jeans maker, you make a maker of informal garments, but not necessarily a tailor. But being autonomous and, and working by yourself, I think, is something that's very associated with tailoring. Uh, I, I think so. But the thing is, you know, Working now for about five years in this branch, it's, I noticed it's it's hard to find uh, people doing a similar thing. I started out with making jeans, thinking that the, the classic denim head would be interested. Well, they are interested in what I do, but mainly they are interested in buying the the big brands, you know, maybe niche brands, but still they also within a certain niche in tailoring. It's also people follow certain trends and ways of working or as a customer. And I think I'm kind of in between. So again, I set myself apart from both sides and, and hope to have it, to make a good combination of both uh, sides of the trade. I'm not a denim head as such because I'm also interested in other things than denim, but I'm also not a classical tailor. No, a, tailor a tailor would be the best way to describe what I do because of the, the craft. But you would think of a classical tailor, you know, making suits and whatever, but I think I call myself a tailor now because it describes it the best, but it's different than I'm sure that the people you're working for or you're apprenticing with. But I'm not yeah, a jeans maker as such. You know, I don't work in the industry. I'm not from the industry. So it's, it's uh, I guess, I found a niche of my own. Well, who would you say is kind of, you know, you talk about the uh, the 501. What is the industry standard for jeans where you say this is the basic gene and I'm different from that gene because of X, Y, and Z? Or would you put it in a category where it's like I, you wouldn't compare a bespoke suit to a made-to-measure suit? Or is it something like that? Well, starting from jeans, I think the, the, the pair of jeans everybody knows is the 501, of course. You know, it's, it's the base. That's where it all started. So it's just a five pocket, you know, the classic pair of jeans. And the 501 has a kind of a non-fit. It's not a perfect fit, but it's it's what everyone was after, you know. Um, so it's the ideal pair of jeans, I think. And everything since is basically from that. So basically, we take the 501, which is the structure of the jeans that we want. It's like that's what we're going for in terms of fit. It's not a perfect fit. But it's the fit that the clients and the people wearing them want. And then you go on top of that and say, how can we make this truly an incredibly well-made garment? You know, how can I make this garment the best that it can be? And that's where you introduce things like denim, selvage denim. If a pair of jeans would fit you too well, like a suit, it would be, it would lose a bit of the coolness, you know? So a pair of jeans wouldn't, shouldn't be too, too neat and too nice. You don't, you well, don't that's interesting. A, that's almost like, that's kind of like Neapolitan tailoring there a little bit. Exactly. Where it's like, if exactly. it's too perfect, it's yeah. not right. Okay. It's, uh, yeah. So I like Neapolitan tailoring. Maybe we go back to that. But so a pair of jeans should be, should be cool. You know, it's, it's everything around jeans is, has to do with coolness and individuality, I think. So the thing was to, to, to bring those worlds together, I think, working from the basics like a 501. The only thing is a lot of people have difficulties finding uh, jeans that fit them well. Apart from style, it's it's hard to find a pair of jeans where all the measurements are a match. 
What's usually the, the main problem? Is it a, is it a waist? To, like, what's I the ratio? I think it could be anything. You know, people have a, the hip is all right, and the waist is not good, or or the, the, the legs are too wide or too small, or the the rise isn't good. So it could be anything. And if you if you found something nice and you want to buy a new pair, it's out of stock. So you have to find a new brand or a new model. So what I do, I think, is just combine those worlds, work from scratch from a person's measurements and build that pair of jeans from the measurements and, and nobody is the same just with two measurements from the body like uh, the waist and the hip no one is alike so how can a pair of ready to wear fit you well that's once you're into like you would agree spoke to you, you cannot imagine people being able to buy something off the rack unless you don't care at all but there are people that don't care yeah okay there are a lot of people that don't care but <laughs> so but you know working from those personal measurements I set up a I set up a pair a pattern to make a pair of jeans. That's one thing, you know. That's different. Then, if you spend all the time to make one pair, you need to work with good fabrics, of course. It's a waste of money not to. So I limit myself to working with salvaged denim, mostly Japanese, because it's it's great quality. And also, the salvage has a constructional function in my case. Maybe you no know, salvage is the end of a roll and it's something I use in construction. The, the the side seam of a pair of jeans is made of salvage. So you don't the have outer to, seam. The, the outer, outer seam. seam. So you don't have to use any overlocking or whatever. So it has construction. Well, so what was the inspiration for because I, uh, I remember you told me there that your jeans are completely enclosed in the sense that there are no there are no open seams or anything that you would see like on a regular pair of jeans. So you have the salvage on your out seam. Yeah. Then your inseam is doubled over. It's, so it's, there it's a felt is, seam and felt seam. Like it's a felt always, seam, so you don't like see anything. It's like you find on the, uh, on the back and on the yokes, regularly. Only in yeah. many cases, the inner seam is just overlocked. In my case, it's also hand felt. And then the pockets, obviously, are you, you don't see anything with the pockets as well. The pockets uh-huh. are closed, you know, like a friend seam on the front pockets and uh, the back pockets are lined. And um, it's the same with the, the waistband is also salvage. Even the belt loops are salvage because usually there's overlocking behind the belt loop. So in my case, I, I use too much fabric on a pair of jeans. More like I was going to ask you, how much yeah. do you – so for like someone who's, I don't know, 180 centimeters tall, what – In general, I, I need about three and a half meters. Wow. So that's twice the length of your legs, and you need about a meter for your waistband, and I need something for the belt loops and for the one-piece salvage fly. Which is crazy, because I know when I... So I'm a hundred, almost 180 centimeters tall. What is that? Five, almost 5'10". Okay. And for me, to make a pair of trousers for me, a meter 70 is okay. too much fabric. <laughs> Like a I meter, think, I can uh, make a pair of trousers and a meter and a half will work for a pair. Okay, pair yeah, of trousers. I think the industry they use about one and a half to two meters for for jeans, but there's always a difference between salvage and non-salvage because also salvage roll is about eighty centimeters wide, whereas a, a non-salvage would be double or one forty. So that's a big difference. It's not doubled over. No, it's not doubled it? over. It's it's a small yeah. roll. And apart from that, um, within my system, I I take extra because I also want to make the waistband salvage. So I could do with about two and a half meters, but like I said, I want to go all the way. I saw on uh, on your pair of jeans, on your jeans, that with the rivets, you have leather behind them. Yeah. Is that correct? They call it leather washes. It's to, I think, to protect the uh, the back of the fabric, you know, for tearing out. It's there for a reason. It's, it also looks Well, like, it looks cool, too. I mean, it yeah, looks, it looks cool. cool, but but still... But it, it also probably does save the fabric because, I mean, if anything, it, because that, that rivet's not rubbing up against the fabric, which at times, like I've had jeans in the past where it's riveted the, the front button and it rips the, fra- the fabric yeah, after, sure. you know, because I'll have the jeans for two or three years and then it rips through. And I think everything on my jeans, even though it's, it's quite detailed, everything is there for a reason. So as I told you, I've been working as a furniture designer for years. And within furniture, you have the Bauhaus system, the Bauhaus, and they talk about form follows function. Everything is there for a reason, not just to be pretty, you know? So everything in my jeans has a function, like the washes and... Uh, so even detail, and the salvage, all the salvage. The salvage is also all, all functional. No, 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 no feeling about it. Just functional, you know. One thing that's particular about your jeans is that you do handmade buttonholes, which I can't imagine how you, you doing that because I make buttonholes 
and I don't know if I have a ton of fun doing it because I've done it so much that I'm kind of worn out over it. Yeah. But doing it on denim, I know I've done it with like cotton. Yeah, sure. It's a bit I can't hard, imagine no? on denim. Well, I had to learn to use a um, thimble, of course, to start with. That's one of the first things. And the thing is, like we said before, in the industry, they all work with different machines. You know, there's a production line. Every machine has a specific thing to do within a pair of jeans. So one thing follows the other. I only work on on one machine, just just one straight stitch machine, uh, single needle. And it was really because I just had one machine and I didn't want to invest in a lot of machines. And I think old school Makers now have a ton of machines, but all vintage machines, which are cool, but I'm not, a, I'm not a technician, I'm not a mechanic. But still, I think the first jeans made must have been made on, a, on one machine, I guess, you know, because you only develop a special machine if you know what it's for. It's after the fact, I think. So in a way, I think my way of, of doing is the most pure way, the purest way of making a pair. In my first year of developing my jeans, I just had to find a way to make a pair with one machine and solving all the problems with that, you know. And one of the things was I, I didn't have a, a buttonhole machine. A good one would cost you about two and a half, three, four thousand euros. So I just decided to, to learn myself how to make a, a buttonhole by hands. That's simply the reason, you know. And now it's one of the things that sets it apart. Well, and then leaving the uh, the gimp out of the buttonhole at the ends. I know you said that form follows function and you don't do things for beauty, but I have to imagine that that's kind of a detail designer type of touch. Yeah, maybe, but it's, I think it shows you what's underneath. It shows you how the buttonhole is, is done. How it's so we still have some function there. We it's still, still functional. Function. It shows you the but it's It's informative for the customer. Yeah. And it's kind of cool, you know, it's it's just a bit edgy. That fits well with, with jeans, I think. Um, well, yeah, just a bit imperfect, like you were saying uh, earlier. Imperfect way. It's it, not it, it, it's, perfect. It's, yeah, it's not perfect in that way. You it's, can just, it's the imperfection that makes the perfection. Yeah, you can just clip it and, and just hide it. But I think in this case, I think it fits better. And it's still, it's more than decoration. It's just leaving something open uh, when I finish a stitch like from on the back pockets, I just go back and forth and I just pull the, the thread inside pants and I just make a knot and I leave it a bit long. I don't just go back and forth and, and, and just clip it. So it's, it's still visible, but you can see what is done. The threads are pulled inside, a double, triple, triple knot, and it shows how the construction is done. I think that's nice. Well, yeah. And then again, on the construction, I mean, working with the, the selvage denim is a bit of a, a chore. Like you were saying, you had to do You had to learn how to work with that cloth, not only because you're using it for the belt, for uh, your belt loops for it, everywhere on the jeans, but also because you're cutting differently. Because with a regular trouser pattern, you can't just cut a pair of selvage denim jeans because you need your sides to be straight. Could you sure. Could you talk yeah. to me a little bit about that? That was my first problem, you know. The patterns I had learned to make years ago were classic. So the grain of the fabric would be center middle, going up and down. In case of salvage, because your outer seam is straight, that is the grain of the fabric. So all the shaping you do from the waist down to the foot is usually done on two sides, on the outer seam and the inner seam. And now everything has to be done on the inner seam. So it's a different balance. Basically, if you look down your jeans, it will not be straight down to the ground. It will be a bit skewed because the side seam is straight. If your knee on a regular pair of trousers will be 20 centimeters, you take uh, 10 from each side of the, of the center, you know. In my case, you take 20 from the side seam inwards so your your starting point is always the side seam because it's straight it has to be the side okay you can't go in from the hip to your knees on the outside only on the inside so, so really selvage is your center line on your on your outer seam not on in the center but it's it's the function of your center and the thing is you can't do any shaping on that side you can't go from your hip inwards and you can go inwards a bit from your hip to your waistband, because that top part on, on the front pockets, I always use cotton tape to finish it. If you want to make a pair of jeans for a woman with a classic figure, a small hourglass figure, it would be very hard using a salvage denim, because you would not have the chance to do the shaping on the outer seam, unless you use stretch fabric, but I refuse to. So. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now. If you have any thoughts or comments, 
please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show. So what does their what does your pattern look like when you, when you cut out? Uh, I don't do you use paper for your patterns when for your clients. I make a paper pattern by hand. Yeah. What does that pattern look like? So instead of having your trousers where there's shape on your side seam, straight side seam for the for both panels, you can just go inwards a bit on the top to the waistband, maybe a centimeter. And one thing I also do, which is different from the industry, is my yoke. On a regular pair of trousers, you would have a dart to just make it go in from the hips to the waist. I just have a curve in my yoke. So I draw my yoke. Oh, you make it I, curved. I make it curved, you know. I just dart okay. it, so to say, so it, it would be more hugging the uh, lower back. Making and then your better. inseam, how does that look on your pad? You still do you uh, draft your inseam as if it was a normal trouser, or are you doing some sort of exaggerated inseam to compensate it all? I'm not sure. You know, there, there are three points. You have the, the cross point, the knee, and the foot, and you just need to make a good curve combining those just just to go from A to B to C. What types of modifications can be done to the trousers? Because there are some limitations with using the selvage in terms of fit, there are limitations, right? Yeah, there are, I think, but you know, it's just what I do. So if I have your measurements, I'll just make you a good pattern. And it will be okay. different than a pair of trousers from a suit, slim or whatever. But then again, you know, um, there are all kinds of models and fits to be made with for a suit. And the same goes for jeans. I've made low waist, high waist, a bit slim fits, a bit more straight, a bit more wide. It's all possible. The only thing is, and if you make if you would make a skinny, which I will not make, but you would really have to make the curve on the inseam very strong inwards, and that would distort, I think, the balance because the inseam would have to to go too far to to make it slim. But I think I would make a skinny pair because I don't like them. And with the fabrics I make non-stretch, it would be not comfortable to wear. Have they? Have a lot of your clients seen your work before? Have they found you on Instagram or they seen your website and they look sure. at your photos? Yeah, everybody. And then they send you a message yeah. so they kind of know. Yeah. So they know what they're going to get or at least know the direction. There's something they I think like. that's really an important thing because – it's important to go to the right tailor for the right garment. It's kind of like, this is an extreme example, but going to a British tailor for uh, like a Neapolitan uh, Manica yeah. Camicia yeah. or something yeah. like that, that they just don't do. And I so, think, yeah, we talked about it. I think it's a strange thing, but, but, but again, then again, you have to, there has to be a certain connection with, between the client and the tailor, you know? Uh, Style-wise, some people like a certain pair of jeans. Uh, I've been asked to do other things because people sometimes come to me because they like what I do, but also the way I do it. They like it to be crafted. So there are a lot of things that could trigger a client, you know. It's not just I want that pair, but sometimes you just have a starting point and you end up somewhere else because you start a conversation. And uh, and it goes it, from there. It's, it's a collaboration. Yeah. It's a collaboration. It's a process for me as well as the client. And sometimes they can just challenge you, you know, into doing something else. That's very interesting. Well, and you had mentioned that you liked Neapolitan tailoring. In the collaboration process, making a pair of jeans or making a worker shirt or a shirt, is that one of the places that you that you get kind of your inspiration from? I look a lot at tailoring in general, you know, I think that's more for me to, to get inspiration from because it's a broader spectrum, I think. It's more technical. The thing with Neapolitan tailoring is it, it's, it has a soft feel, so it's, it's a bit closer to what I do. And since I made... It's a bit more relaxed. It's a bit so more relaxed. In, in that yeah. sense, it's a bit more relaxed. You're doing but, but, informal clothing. Not in clothing. the sense like within the denim scene, relaxed would mean a bit non-fit and, and not too precise. And well, okay, it doesn't matter because it's it's casual. But I don't like that, you know. Whatever you wear, it has to be a good fit. It has to be a good fabric. It needs to fit on you. So you have to be very precise about that. But still, you need it to be... A good fit shouldn't result automatically in something a bit more formal. And I think that's with Neapolitan tailoring. It, it's, it has a soft feel, you know, it's casual in a way and still 
if it's done right, you know, it's, it's still very well made. They do say that yeah, well, Neapolitan tailors are, are less professional or less high quality than maybe an English or a French tailor, but I can't just that, you know, I, I don't have any Neapolitan. I can't afford uh, having something that maybe spoke for me. <laughs> I only make my maybe own Maybe you stuff could trade and, a pair of jeans. Well, whatever, yeah, a few pairs maybe then. <laughs> but still, it's it's for me something to get inspiration from. And, and the things I do, I also do shirts and worker jackets. And my worker jackets are getting a bit more detailed in, in, in the process recently and also in, in the hand stitching and, and things like that. And I do like to get inspiration from the Italians, and like the Spallacomitia things, you know. Uh, well, it definitely shows through on your worker jackets. Okay. It's almost like you're wearing a Neapolitan-styled jacket. I think it comes There's, there's double-pick stitching, yeah, yeah. there's patch pockets, and then also in the softness of the garment, it's very beautiful. Well, what was the first worker jacket that you made? Was it a client piece or was it something that you thought no, of and it, you thought, I'd like to offer that to my clients? Everything I offer is, is just tested by myself. You know, I just made things for myself, made several samples. And at a point where I would say, well, this is good, you know, I, I control the pattern and I know the detailing and, and construction. Then I just put it out there and then people would just see it and, oh, so that's how my range uh, grew, you know. Same with shirts and, and the worker jackets. And at first, the worker jackets were a bit of a variation on a, on a shirt, pattern-wise. And then I just improved on the sleeve. I just took a sleeve. A sleeve on a shirt would be one piece. I made it two-piece so there would be a bit more structure to it, a bit more fit. And recently, I just took the pattern from a suit jacket as a sleeve. So even more, more structure or more, at least more fit. A uh, step closer to a, a suit. A step close. I won't be making yeah. jackets because I I can't do the, the canvassing. I'm just now in the process of getting out my old Runeshaw jacket patterns and diving into those again. And I must say that it's been around for 30 years in, in the closet, you know. But still, getting them back, I immediately can work with it because, like I said, the confidence you gain through the years and doing what I do now, it's it's a small step to at least dare to work on them again. The only thing is, my jackets are unstructured. There are lines if somebody likes it, partly lines, but there's no shoulder pads, no there's wedding, no can- and there's no canvas. No canvassing, no, no. The only thing is in my colors I use also on the shirts, it's non-fused, but there's an extra layer of cotton, so it's a bit more structured, but it's still soft. So even though the shirt can be classic or f- a bit formal in, in, in its pattern, it still is soft to wear. Well, now maybe having the experience that you had, I know at the beginning you said, when you started out on your own, it was good to have the experience, the life experience, to have the confidence to be able to to sell things. Yeah. And then I'm sure now that experience is going to help you when you're going through your jacket patterns. And I think the like you said, you need guidance from a, from a tutor in your case, and, and and telling you what you do is good or how to do it better. I think that's a good thing. You know, I wish I would have been an apprentice at a retailer, but. I, I wasn't, so I have to work on my own. I did have a good tutor in, in transforming my patterns to a salvage pattern. I had a lack of finding someone who could help me with it. From that, I still had to work on, on making numerous samples to really make it my own and see where in the pattern, what was fixed, what is the variables, you know, to really make it my own. But a good tutor is helpful. But now the confidence also comes from just um, some good clients, you know, loyal clients who just uh, trust you. I have one client from America who just is always challenging me to go one step further. A lot of worker jackets are made for him, and I just could progress in that because of him, you know, because he would say, well, this could be something you can make. I say, okay, well, I'm going to try, you know. And the first one is always okay, but the second one is always better, you know. It's the same with all bespoke processes. You need patience to together to go through a few steps to, to reach, well, some kind of perfection, if, if it exists at all. But I think the confidence also mainly comes from just response from your clients. I bet that's a really rewarding relationship that you have with that American client because at some point you can't always you can't compare yourself to another tailor because at the end of the day you sure. have clients, those clients have have certain tastes and once you are at a certain level of quality in terms of the product you have to really turn your focus to your clients and figure out what they want and then when your clients are happy that's when you know you're that you're being successful in the garments that you're making like you said especially if you know the client and you know they are aware of of 
of the process. They know what they're talking about. Um, some of them are very much into tailoring. So you can trust them in, in their judgments, so to say, you know. So it really is a boost if they like what you do. I mean, if you have just a one-time client ordering a pair of jeans and he's happy, that's great, you know. If it's better than their previous ready-to-wear jeans, it's great. But that's just most of the time a regular pair of jeans. But with returning clients, you know, if you just get more more garments you just you end up just doing more so yeah. you appreciate their their uh, their meaning more you know yeah so you mentioned this is an american client what's been, what's it been like with covid i think you said you have a lot of clients from out of the country that are either europe uk the united states how does can you talk about your process with measurements because i know you have a specific process that you go through for measurements yeah, well is- there are local clients or from the netherlands they come over just used to come over pre-covid and uh, like i think a regular bespoke process they would be in my studio we would discuss what they like you know trying to find a good fabric i would take the measurements and then i would make them a sample so i would draw a pattern make a sample in, in just a cotton and they would come back to my studio for a fitting, make some small adjustments and then I would make the jeans or the jacket or whatever. With foreign customers, it was quite a thing at the beginning. Question, will, will it work? But on my side, I have some instructions on how to take your own measurements. And for jeans, it works out very well. I only need two measurements from a body, like the waist and the hip, and the rest from jeans they also like, you know. And, and that could be several pairs. They could say, well, this pair has, has the, the right rise, and this one is, is good at the knee width and, and or the hem. So they can just make up their own sizing chart, so to say. And that's just a matter of communicating through email back and forth, you know, just helping them so, out. And then they take their measurements... They do you recommend the that the client takes yeah. their own measurements? Yeah. Or do you, measure, do yeah. you recommend that they get someone to take the measurements for them? Well, I'm not, I'm the not, measurements you know, that are taken on their body? They can take their own measurements and we just talk about what would you like, just to make sure they have the right information. Would you like a, a, a regular fit a bit loose or whatever? So through that, that communication, we just have a basic to work on. And they sent me a few photos, you know, of, of how just front, back and, and side so I can see how they're shaped, how they stand, what their posture is. So I know where to go with the measurements. And uh, from that, I just make them a jeans and it, it works out very nice, yeah. That's an innovative thing to do in tailoring, even though it doesn't really seem like a super innovative thing. It seems very, um, very, very simple and old school and also born out of necessity. And the thing is, it, it, it proved to be working. And it's harder, I think, for a worker jacket or shirt because I think with jeans, the luggage, you know, uh, jeans is, will stretch a bit where it will shrink a bit and wash. So there's always... It's not a perfect size. I mean, a waist of 90 could be between 89 and 91. So I always say if it stretches a bit too much, give it a warm wash. You know, if it's okay, just give it a cold wash. Or you can play around with it and, and it will set a bit to your body. And But for a shirt and a jacket, it's a bit harder. You know, the, the, how is the shoulder? How is the, the posture of a person? In some cases, I work the same as with jeans, but I also but then I will send them a sample to fit, and we will just have a FaceTime chat for him to try them on, and so I could just judge the sample and, and make adjustments based on that. It's so you've, like, been, uh, you've been affected very little from from COVID. You've been yeah, going through I fittings. Think, you've been I doing... think two people just canceled their appointment, locals, and they came back uh, a month later, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> And for the rest, the only thing is that um, shipping took longer. So it took me about two months to get a parcel over to New York instead of uh, three weeks because of customs. And, and, and Japan has been a difficult to order fabrics from, but it's all, I think uh, things are going back to normal uh, in trafficking, so in, in sending over stuff. So I'm lucky that my system was COVID proof, so to say. Yeah. In terms of your jeans, because, you know, jeans in general are a little bit less precise in how they fit. They're less precise, like you were saying. It could be 89, could be 91 of uh, on the waist because the fabric changes, the fabric stretches, the fabric shrinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you get a lot of jeans back to you after a year or two of wear or something? And if you do, do the, what, what kind of condition are those jeans in? Well, they don't come back because they don't fit. I just said one or two times somebody said I, I can't get in them, but then it appeared they just gave me their own measurements, which is a shame, but that can happen. But I try to avoid it by just really 
say check, check, double check your measurements. In general, you can't really adjust the pair after it's done because all the seams are just top stitch. You know, it's not like a pair of trousers from a suit. I do offer repair services if needed, you know, but I've had a few back that really needed mending, but they were just worn two or three years, day in, day out, and uh, sort of needed patching or whatever, you know, because it really were worn through. Yeah, but that's a good sign, you know, that's... Uh, if that it means that the it, client likes it. Yeah, if it's the favorite jeans and they won't take it off, that's good, you know. You know, you make jeans, you make worker jackets, you make shirts. How do you look at the sartorial world you see Italian tailoring, you see English tailoring. How do you look at it, and what do you think in general? Well, in general, it's an inspiration for me because there's so much going on. I think there's a kind of revival, revival in crafts in general. Since I've started, I mean, a lot of brands popped up, you know, one-man brands also in, 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 in gene-making, leather, whatever. And I think the tutorial world, I think, got a boost from that as well. And for me, it's inspiration. I think I'll, I'm... It would inspire me to try out new things, technical things like we said about Neapolitan sleeves, doing a patch pocket, the hand stitching, and uh, it's an inspiration. And I think the strange thing, like we talked about, the difference between English tailoring and Italian tailoring. Not being a tailor, I don't know anything in detail about it, but the different schools of tailoring, I find hard to, to understand because with what I can do with my skills, I choose to do a certain way of working. You know, I, I choose to make a spalacamiccia, for instance, or a certain color on a shirt. Not because I'm Italian or English, because I'm not, I'm Dutch, but what's the Dutch school? I, I would know, you know. I choose my own way of approaching a garden. Well, that's what's so, that's what I like so much about what you do is that there's not a need to be, there's not a need to follow tradition. No, no, and I think tradition is no. a great thing. You know, the Italian tradition of tailoring is great. They've they've made beautiful garments, and the handwork is incredible. You know, with all respect, but there is something to be said. I think for saying, how can we do this in a beautiful way? How can we do this in a way where we're going to make a garment that fits of extremely high quality, and then just doing it instead of being tied down by certain by certain traditions. I think traditions can get in the way, you know. I mean, if you have to finish something like a, a, an armhole in a shirt, you can do it by machine or you can do it by hand. I'm sure one will say the machine is stronger, the other one would say, well, the hand stitching is stronger, whatever. In the end, it's just details, you know. I don't know why the English do it in the one way and the Italians in another way. I choose to follow a way that I liked because of the process and like the looks of it, you know. And there's a certain amount of control you have with hand stitching, I found out, and it also gives you a, a bit more detailed look. I think it's a bit more refined when you when you use hand stitching for, for a shirt or for a worker jacket. We're kind of going back to the beginning of the conversation with, with how you learned tailoring. When was the first time that you used a thimble? Because you started out working, <laughs> you started out kind of ripping stuff apart, putting it together, yeah, yeah. worked with someone about pattern making. When did you get, when did you start using the thimble? Well, my first, when I just was in the beginning of making my jeans patterns and my first samples, I just did some machine stitching to get a buttonhole to mimic it, like so to say, and uh, and then I had to decide whether to invest in a machine or not. And so I couldn't. So the only solution was hand stitching. The especially, especially with especially with jeans, you need a thimble. So uh, yeah, I think about five years ago. You know, and I must say, it's it will take you some time to to get used to a thimble and also to make a buttonhole. And the first ones were awful. I'm sure you you know better than I do. But they say it takes about a hundred to make a decent buttonhole and another hundred or five hundred to make a nice buttonhole. I'm not sure, but there are about four or five on a pair of jeans, depending on the rise of the jeans. So I've made a few, and I'm say there's. I'm in control now, at least, so I can, yeah. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for having this conversation with me. Is there anything else that thank you. Uh, that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about or, I'm, I'm or sure. get Look, a message yeah. out there? Yeah, I'm not sure. We were talking about apprenticeships, and one thing that might be nice to mention, though, I mean, teaching, you know? You're being taught now, and uh, I think that's very important. And the only downside of my method is that I don't have an apprentice or whatever. People do ask me, can I just come over from India or whatever and <laughs> just live with you and, and show me how to make jeans? I'm saying, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have, I don't take apprentices because my studio is too small and, and I like to work alone. It would be too intrusive on my system. And to get to a point where an apprentice or an employee could help you uh, double your 
output would take too long and it would be too expensive. So there's no way for me to do that. But I do feel that you no know, last few years I've had a friend of mine, Richard, Richard helped me to make some few videos about the process of first making a pair of jeans, then I'm making a shirt, and another one of making jeans and a buttonhole. And I think that is my way of just showing the process and we've got a lot of response and people asking me about details through videos through youtube and also on instagram and through email so i think yeah i'm, I'm sorry about not being able to teach and to pass it on but i think it's good to see the people are inspired by what i do well, and, yeah, and but think about, i like to, i like to communicate what, you... what i do you know talk about it they ask me i tell them almost everything if i can and so that's a good thing you know so uh, and maybe no, that's I, a really, really good thing. Yeah, I've been asked to do, we had planned to do a workshop last April in London, Black Horse Lane. But unfortunately, that was cancelled due to COVID, of course. So that would have been a workshop where people would make a pair, their own pair of jeans in about two and a half days. So I am thinking about doing something Paul, similar. Yeah. When was that workshop supposed to be in April? April, yeah. I signed up to do that uh, workshop. No way. Are you sure? I signed up to do that. Yes. Oh, that's perfect. Okay. Well, we need to uh, do it again. People ask me, do you do workshops? I say, well, maybe some private workshop would be possible. You know, just not making a pair of jeans. It would take too long, but just go through the process, talk about detailing. How, how do you make a seam? How do you make details so that they can go home and make their own pair? So that will be something for the future just to one-on-one uh, -on -one workshops maybe. So you're welcome to... Uh... Well, I think that's a good way of doing it, though, because you're able to give out a lot of information and be really helpful and give 100% of your attention to that person or to that group of people. I think it, it would fit my way of working to, to keep it very small, you know? Yeah. Going all the way, yeah. but keep it small, not just be in front of a class of 30 people. That would work. When it is in the future, let me know because I have to. We I have to sign yeah, up for sure. that class again. Yeah, I think uh, if Black Horse Lane is back again, it will be sure on Instagram. But the private workshop, I think, will be just something that could happen if I would come to an agreement with one person about coming over. It would be nice to do, you know, just to go one on one and just go into details. And uh, looking forward to well, that. You mentioned you mentioned about sharing info, which and I know you said I you know it's kind of I wish I could kind of pass on some of the some of the craft that I've learned. I think you are doing so much in sharing info and being open with the work that you did. And I saw I remember seeing the YouTube video about how how to make a pair of jeans that you were talking about. I saw it and it was a great video. Do you remember the name of the video exactly? Well, uh, two, uh, we started uh, quite early with one quite long video, uh, making a pair of jeans. And about a year ago, a uh, second one, a bit more uh, up to date, you know, technical in a, in a way of the process. And are you on YouTube as Paul? Paul it's Cruz? YouTube, yeah, on my own name. It's, okay. Yeah, okay. it's about uh, one about, two about jeans making, one about making a shirt, and one about the buttonholes on the jeans. I think sharing information is so important. I think and it's important. I think yeah, sure. Well, if you were you again, if you were 20 years old again, and you were looking for information, I mean, think about how helpful you would be to your 20-year-old self. Because you were learning by yourself when you, were, when you were 20 years old. So to all those people who, like myself who are learning, just being open with information is so helpful because people can do it by themselves. And you're a great example of that, that you yeah, can self-train. We're living in a great area because I learned a lot from also from YouTube, you know, from Instagram, just, just looking around. In the old days, you just had to find someone and to, to follow a course. Now there's so much information online. And I must say also, I have through Facebook or whatever, contact with other people, like Frank Shattuck, you know. I didn't know Frank. We just got in contact through Messenger and I, I saw him on, on some videos with Anthony Boudin and it's really inspiring what he does. And we just talked about online about things and just he would just draw me a sketch of how to do a certain sleeve and just detail it for me so it's also you know learning from from each other you know even online long distance and that's great you know just get some inside information take a shortcut you know you, <laughs> there's no time to uh, to apprentice for 10 years at a tailor but it's always nice to to when you have a certain technical problem to find someone who could just set you straight on something and uh, inspire you you know how do you continue to learn at the point that you're at right now in, let's, in your professional career as a maker? How are you continuing to learn? And we kind of already were talking about that with social media, talking, you know, like you said, you talk with Frank Shattuck. What's the main source of learning for you right now? Is it making garments and, and seeing yeah. them on your clients and fitting? Is that where the main learning comes from? I think if I look back at the last few years, it's mainly just when you make it, 
for instance, a pair of jeans, you say, well, this one is going to be perfect. And then when you finish, you say, okay, it's good, but it's not perfect. The next one will be perfect. So there always has to be an urge to be better, you know. And it, it can be perfect in that situation, but there's always something else, you know, to make better. Same with the jackets with the workers. You work with different fabrics, and every fabric requires something else. So you try to solve a problem with the next one, and another problem pops up. So you're never done. You're never done. And that's frustrating, like I said to you, but in the same time, it's what keeps keeps you going and what keeps you eager, I think. Every every time, try to improve on another point. And also, well, and keep my, 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 my genes are just, just fairly basic uh, thought out now. So it, it, perfection will be in, in the uh, adjustment for the certain clients. And But in other things like workers, there's still more details I want to, to master. Try something else, another sleeve or whatever, and, and get the fit better improve on the pattern the the pursuit of perfection i mean we already kind of we already talked about this where you're never really going to get there but it's it's the journey getting there that it, i think so it's just uh, trying to, trying to to be better will make every next garment a bit better and i think as long as your level of today is good enough to to show and to sell or whatever then it's okay you know you can only get better but you need a certain level to uh, to go out there and to show what you do and to offer what you do well, Paul, I think this is a good place to sign off. Where can people get in touch with you if they're if they want to find out find out more about you? I How think can they find Instagram you? will be a good place. My full name, Paul Kruijzer, is my Instagram account as well as my website. And uh, as we talked about on YouTube, there are a few videos, so there's lots of ways. Well, Paul, I want to thank you again. Hopefully, you enjoyed this, and uh, sure, hopefully, sure we'll did. be able to do it again. Take care. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or even better, if you'd simply share the show with a friend. Until next time.